My name's Graham Newman. I'm the founder of Design School Asia. Throughout this Making and Doing series, I'm asking leading creative, technology, and business industry experts how their practice is responding to change and how this change can foster cultural, economic, and social benefit in Southeast Asia. In today's program, we're talking to Kuntiwa York, an active angel investor who was the founder and chief executive officer of Kaidi, Thailand's largest C2C marketplace. In 2019, Kaidi had 1 million sellers, listing over 8 million items and reaching 24 million ties. Kaidi was sold in early 2020 to EMPG, a global classifieds company based in Dubai. York has been recognized for his leadership and efforts to build the team and culture at Kaidi. He currently is board member at Seekster, Shooter and Hubber. Prior to his current role, he worked in digital advertising with leadership roles in AdMax Network and Omnicom Media Group. We begin by asking Kuntiwa what advice he would give to entrepreneurs who think they have the big idea to build an enterprise but have not yet started. Okay, so if we look at uh, advice for this group of people, the first piece of advice is get out of the building and start building something. Um, I think too many people sit around and they think about it and they don't actually take action. And the reality is if you just sit around and just think about it, you're never going to get it off the ground. These enterprises need action. And so take the action and you're going to make mistakes, but those mistakes aren't failures. They're learning opportunities. And so when you sit around, you put together a business plan or however you want to start the enterprise when you're sitting around thinking about it, that's just you. What you need to be is outside the building and actually talking to your customers and find out if you can put together the idea, the solution or the service um, that actually meets your customers' needs. And so my first piece of advice is get out of the building. And what we see is a lot of maybe engineers have an idea or creative um, people have ideas but they're oftentimes introverts and they don't get out there and they just sit around, they program or they do a bunch of designs, but they actually don't talk to the customer. And the most important thing that you can do is actually talk to your customer and learn from them. And then you can actually build your enterprise around that. Yeah, I think there is an inherent trait of uh, certainly design practitioners that they are inherently introvert. But at the same time, no one's going to give you any money. And as you say, you've got to go out there and you've got to be at, get out of your comfort zone. Uh, some people naturally do that with charisma and others have to practice it and push themselves hard. How do you kind of overcome that? I think you touched on it. It's practice. It's getting out there and trial and error. Um, also spending time with um, colleagues or peers in the industry to test your ideas out. I think probably the best example I can give is through the mentorship program that we did with uh, DTAC Accelerate, which is now um, defunct. But in the years I mentored with them, I was meeting with my startup teams every single week. And we didn't just talk about the business. Every single week, I would have them pitch me again. And they have to continue to hone their pitch and work on their pitch so that it's convincing, not only for the you know, demo day audience, but also for the investor crowd, um, for uh, other partners that they may have, etc. And so you need to continue to hone that skill in terms of your presentation skills and being able to engage with that particular community. The other key thing to be that I should point out here is that there is a difference between pitching to the investment community and partners rather than pitching to customers. And so I think you need to build up both types of pitches. And so it's equally true that you need to build up that comfort level with customers and potential customers. And so those two pitches are not the same. 
So if you're pitching me as an angel investor or me as a customer, I should hear two different stories. One is the customer, how does it benefit me? And what is this going to do to make my life so awesome and so great? Whereas with the investors, it's this is a product or service that you should invest into because it's going to grow 10 times, 100 times in value over the next three to five years. You mentioned the DTAC mentoring program, which I'm guessing was uh, guiding company founders and managing through a structured program of development as they build their business. Can we unpack that a bit? So... uh... The, the companies would come and uh, they apply for the program and those applicants get narrowed down to about 25. I think in the last couple of years, they had about 500 applicants per year and there would be 25 selected for um, to pitch and they would pitch to mentors. So I was a mentor. Uh, there's several of my colleagues in the industry, B, Ariat, who's now doing transformational, or you've got people like Thukko, who runs Marketing Oops. Uh, you've got Boat from Bilk. Those are all colleagues of mine that also were mentors. They would come pitch to us. And out of that 25, we would usually select uh, anywhere between 10 to 12 companies that would make it into the boot camp and the batch into that program. Um, once they enter the program, then we start uh, working with them on a weekly basis normally. And for me, they would meet with me on every Friday at about 4 p.m. And we'd spend an hour or two going through whatever topics that are pertinent to the business and also reviewing how they're doing in terms of their pitch deck, in terms of the program itself. And are they getting traction behind the business? Because part of the thing is, is it's an accelerator. You want to win the accelerator program, right? Uh, it's competitive and entrepreneurs are competitive by nature and by spirit. And so you want to win. So we're always looking at, okay, what do we need to do to actually win the program? But it really comes down to the traction of the business. Is the business getting traction over this period of time? Because the actual program only lasts about, I think, three and a half, four months, maybe. And we want to see them actually making progress in the business um, that will really develop the business into something great when they graduate the program. I guess following on from that, there's a a couple of options for mentors and innovators and entrepreneurs. There's the lean lean startup, and then there's the kind of elaborate, traditional, big planning upfront development. Uh, Lean startup being very, very favorable at the moment using Lean Canvas methodology. And is this a methodology that you're witnessing at the moment, or is it still the traditional kind of 30-page business plan with, you know, cost of sales, revenue streams, et cetera, et cetera? No, it's uh, definitely lean startup. That's what we see. The pitches, I mean, when we do a pitch, when we talk about it, the teams pitch us, they usually have five minutes to pitch. That's it. They need to tell us about the business in five minutes. And then we make decisions based upon that five minutes. It's usually five minutes plus another five to 10 minutes worth of questions. Um, So it's definitely lean startup. And for anybody who's thinking about doing a enterprise of doing a startup, I recommend reading Eric Reese's book, um, Lean Startup. It's definitely a recommended read for anybody who's doing this because it'll tell you how to get off the ground. Um, The traditional business plans, I would say, don't match with a startup. And I think it's probably worthwhile to define a little bit what's the difference between a startup and a more standard or traditional enterprise, or what we might call an SME. 
And a lot of people will say, isn't it scale? Well, no, technically no. SMEs can scale to very large conglomerates. Uh, CP here in Thailand being a great example, which is a Fortune 100 company now, um, started out as a seed business. So you can expand these businesses massively. So that's not the difference. The way I define it, and this is, there's people in the industry that will disagree with me. This is my personal definition, is that if you look at an SME, an SME has a known product or service, a known customer base, a known investment and a known margin out of it and a known ROI. So we know for some period, some point in time in the future, we're going to make profit out of this. And because we know exactly where we're going to get our profit from. And usually that time frame should be somewhere between three and six, three, three, sorry, six months to three years. Now, those SMEs, they're great businesses and they can absolutely scale. The one stat to remember is that 80% of SMEs fail. Why do they fail? Usually because of one reason and one reason only, mismanagement of cash flow. That's why they don't make it. So that's an SME. So then what is a startup? A startup is an identified problem or opportunity. We've identified this in the market. We believe we have a solution for that need, for that market need. We hope we might have some customers for our solution. And we think we might be able to monetize this profitably. We have no idea if we're going to, when we're going to return the capital back to our investors. And that's a true startup enterprise. And usually these businesses have a 96% failure rate. So people that say, I want to go into startups, I would say you really need to consider, do you want that life? Because it probably means you're going to be eating ramen noodles for the next few years because you can't afford to pay yourself. And you're trying to figure out how to cover payroll topics and things like that because you don't know where your money is going to come from. You're going to have to go and pitch for it and find other areas to get your cash. You mentioned markets earlier. And where are we now in terms of the growth markets for innovation that our investors are looking at and are seeing as attractive? Yeah, so Southeast Asia is definitely the... um, biggest area of focus at the moment. If we look at from a global scale, you know, I think Southeast Asia followed on from South America. So South America is still booming, but they're very much more about Southeast Asia. In Southeast Asia, what matters is Indonesia and today Vietnam. Those are the two markets. Thailand remains an enigma in this world, which is everything, all the stats look great, but we haven't seen a, a unicorn come out of the market yet. And I think there's a lot of factors, and we can dive into some of those factors. Um, Even in Southeast Asia, there's still a lot of room to grow because when we talk about Southeast Asia, we're usually talking about six core markets. So the six core markets are Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, and Indonesia. Those are the six core, but there's a lot of other markets that are still not addressed or under-addressed, and that is Cambodia, Myanmar, Laos, Brunei is one of them in there as well. And so I think there's a lot of growth still to be had in Southeast Asia. There's still a lot of opportunities in South Asia as well, um, with the inclusion of Bangladesh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, the Sri Lanka, another one that I think there's still a lot of opportunities still going on in Asia, Southeast Asia and South Asia. You mentioned there are certain factors that um, impact Thailand's entrepreneurship or ability to do so. And I guess that comes down to reform and regulation, right? Yeah, there's lots of different factors. So if we look at, um, there's some structural problems and then there's um, 
cultural inhibitors, I guess I would call it. We don't have enough entrepreneurs working in startups. There are a ton of entrepreneurs in Thailand. They're all doing SME businesses. In fact, when I hire staff, I always love to ask them, what do you want to do in five years? And they always come back, well, I want to own my own business. I want to open a coffee shop. I want to open a bakery. So you've got a lot of entrepreneurship, but very little startup entrepreneurship. Um, so we need a lot more people trying to do startups. The type of profile that we see in the startup founders is pretty standard. You can kind of spot them. They're usually 25 to 35 years old. They usually come from a fairly affluent family, um, typically either Western educated or international school educated, or at least bilingual program at the high school and university level. And so it's a pretty um, homogenous type of group, and we need to expand that. And I think that's one of the needs, and we need to continue to cultivate those entrepreneurs. We also need to get them exposure. So another structural issue is that Thailand's a closed language market. Um, and I think it becomes very difficult. We don't have uh, Roman characters. And so that also is a factor in terms of access to not only information, but access to capital as well. A lot of people don't understand um, Thailand. So even despite all the indicators that people normally look at, whether it's GDP indicators, population indicators, um, you know, home ownership, car ownership, et cetera. All those are very, very strong in Thailand. The issue is now more about how do we develop that entrepreneurship and also the entrepreneurship and startups that have a larger um, perspective rather than just trying to fix something for Thailand, which is another issue that we've seen in the market. A lot of times the vision that our entrepreneurs have, have is very local as opposed to going, okay, how do we actually scale this and apply it to a global scale? And I think that's something that we need to continue to develop. On the structural side, there still remains um, issues to develop from a regulatory uh, point of view. So one of those issues is the structure of companies and how can you structure a company in Thailand? Uh, the government needs to update its um, laws. I've been preaching about this for over 10 years now. I think there's a ways to go. We are making some progress. Some of that progress in Thailand is uh, this past year. They actually did pass, uh, pass legislation that accepts convertible notes as a funding mechanism. So that's a positive development in Thailand. But there are also a lot of other more fundamentals. How do you set up a company, et cetera, in Thailand, which, to be honest, it's so much easier in, in Singapore. And to give the audience a perspective on that, if you're to set up an e-commerce company and head office is out of Singapore, it will probably take you about two days to get everything set up. If you do it in Thailand and you get it done within one month, you've done a fantastic job. Uh, the reason for that is you have to talk to three, depending upon your business, three to four different ministries just to get the licensing correct, plus the structure. And if you're a foreign-owned entity, you have to go through a BOI application, a board investment application. Otherwise, you have to have Thai partnership, which has a majority ownership of the part of the um, enterprise. So these are all structural problems. I think there needs to be progress made at the government level of how do we make it easier to do business in Thailand so that Thailand can be more competitive in this area on a global scale. I think we're seeing we're seeing some uh, traction. I mean, certainly deeper. The uh, Digital Economy Promotion Agency uh, seems to be doing good things at the moment to encourage reform. But as you say, there's so much needs to be changed in in order to you know catch up with uh, market leaders and uh, Singapore, for example. Have you and your peers had any direct conversations with Deeper? 
Yes, we're, we talk to them uh, quite often and we're pretty ingrained in what they do. They, I think Deepa's done a great job of trying to um, invest and try to uh, encourage the market in the area of startups. But again, there's still some foundational legislation that just needs to be changed um, in terms of how business works. A lot of the business laws were written 40, 50 years ago. Um, and they're often written in a protectionist manner and were built for an industrial age, not for a knowledge age. And people say, well, what's, what's the big deal? You just set up in Singapore. Well, if you think about it fundamentally, is that if you set it up in Singapore, the IP, the intellectual property, is now owned in a different company, country. And that's a big loss for Thailand. And so you really want to try to keep intellectual property being owned out of the country that it was created in. I think that's something that uh, it behooves the government to fix so that people are thinking about if I'm going to set up a company, I want to set up in Thailand. Right now, people want to set up in Singapore. And this includes um, people from abroad. Uh, what you find is a lot of uh, Western or even Asian uh, markets, they actually want to live and work out of Thailand. A, it's a wonderful place to live. B, it's cheaper um, and more affordable and economical. And you can have incredible views if you want to sit on the beach or you want to be in Bangkok where you have great infrastructure. You can do lots of different things. And they want to be here, but getting over across the line in terms of how to set up a business here, everything from the structure of the company ownership down to visas, et cetera, is still quite complex. And I think there's a, a lot of improvements to be made. I'd like to move on from a design practitioner startup perspective. We have many of our listeners are very hungry, set up their own company. They're looking at using lean canvas models. They think they've got a market, but they know very little about angel investment and how venture capital money works uh, in terms of actually hooking up the founders and looking at where to get money from, or at least starting that process. How does that work? So uh, you try to start a business today and you're looking for angel investment. Um, first lesson is have a product and at least an MVP. Because if you come talk to myself or my colleagues that do angel investment and you don't have an MVP and you only have an idea and you don't even have a team yet, we're probably just going to say, uh, come back to us when you're ready. Um, it's not worth our time to find out and say, oh, I have a great idea. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, and by the way, if I may add this in, something I say often, ideas are a dime a dozen. Yours is not unique. There are 7 billion people on this world. And if you think yours is unique, then I would say, wow, that's amazing, A. And B, what drugs are you taking? Because it's unlikely. What's more important is um, execution. Execution is the premium. And if you can execute, that's worth more than gold. And that's what matters. So if you think about it from an angel investor where I'm taking risks with my own cash, I want to see somebody that actually has put some time and effort into executing an idea. An MVP, at least gone out to test it to market. Maybe it's not launched yet, but at least you've talked to customers. You have data. You have other things that you can prove that this has some legs behind it and some validity behind the idea. And now you just need some cash to try to fund it, to try to really invest into it and grow it. So how do you start? Um, this is an area that myself and my other angel, angel investors are trying to improve upon in Thailand. Uh, we know it's a gap in the market. So we're trying to better organize the angel investors. Because today, if you're a startup, you don't know how to find us. Um, if you didn't listen to Graham's podcast and you never met me, 
you would say, who do I start with? But now you know Tiwa, so you can look me up on LinkedIn if you have um, the, the idea to pitch. So that's an area that we want to fix. And the thesis behind this is that this gap between angels and startups is causing a problem because if we could strengthen the foundation of angels, then we can strengthen the follow-on funding rounds. So typically, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, the funding rounds go like this. Just start it up. Usually use your own capital bootstrap or friends and family. You ask for 10,000 bucks from your uncle or whomever that is. Once you get that MVP off the ground, you start to look for angel investors. And that's where we come in. And then you have the next round, which is seed round. So this is when, okay, we've proven this. We've taken on 50 or $100,000 in angel investment. Now we're looking for a seed round and seed round capital, probably looking to raise somewhere between a quarter million up to a million bucks. Um, and then you go into your series A, which means this is growth space. That means we actually have traction. We can see it. We need to pump some real cash into here. And that series A, you're looking at Thailand somewhere between 1 million to 5 million, maybe up to 10 million, depending upon the type of company you have. And that's when you start to bring on real institutional investors, right? In the seed stage, you may be bringing on a seed stage fund, like 500 startups or 500 tuk-tuks in our market. Uh, but once you get to Series A, then you're looking at real institutional investors, and then you go to Series B, Series C, et cetera. So that's kind of the path. Today, if you want to meet the angel investors, my recommendation is show up at networking events. Um, unfortunately, networking events in person have now been shut down in Thailand, but there still are online seminars and other things happening. So try to plug into those communities, um, not just in Thailand, in Singapore and Southeast Asia. There's a lot going on. Read Tech in Asia, read E27. Um, if you're in Thai market focus, then read Thumbs Up or Marketing Oops. These are all good areas to kind of spot what's happening in the market and be able to network with people and really taking the effort to um, engage with somebody. And when you do engage with somebody, my advice is don't come to them with a, just an idea. Present yourself with a solid idea and present it politely. Also put with it at minimum a teaser pitch because if it's a cold call, chances are we will ignore it. So it's got to come something got to stand out. And if it's just an email without any details in it, we'll never respond. So give us something that we can actually look at and go, oh, oh, wow, you caught my attention with this. Let's follow up with that. If you're going to do a, a cold call kind of blind approach. And I guess also with looking at angel investments prior to Series A, it's also the soft power of leveraging the established network within, within that investor. And in fact, when you look at angel investors, um, we, I guess maybe I should talk about our, our group of my, my colleagues, uh, friends that we kind of invest together is that one thing we look for are startups that we can work with because we have a working theory that startup founders need a lot of support and help. And so we want to look for businesses that are looking for our help, not just money. Money is actually pretty easy to come by. But if you engage with an angel investor, you should really engage with that person to get their help, um, whether it's their network or their expertise or within their network of expertise or also introductions to for your next round of funding, because all of us also know we're usually co-invested with other VCs. Um, so these are all things that you should leverage from your from your founder, from your angels as a founder. Um, to give you some practical examples when, you know, big areas I usually work with, uh, my startups is they usually have issues with um, their finance and accounting. So I usually come in, help them with that. 
Governance is another topic because once you go on to future rounds, the investors expect a lot more because they're getting, they're putting in a lot more money. So it's not as simple as working with me as a single individual investor, which I can say yes very quickly. They want to see a lot more detail, especially once you get into Series A, Series B rounds. The other areas is tech and then HR and operations. HR is a massive topic. HR and culture is something that I spend a lot of time on and then also help with operations. So these are pieces of advice that we try to give to our the startups that we work with. I think in addition to that, you're very big, I know, on building high-performance teams. You're only as good yes. as the people around you and in the startup environment that is invariably your advisory board who you can usually only pay just by with stock options or you know a, a wing and a prayer what do you think is the kind of fundamentals that you're looking for to build high performance teams so high performance teams actually happen to have um certain about 10 characteristics um in general uh this is a something i actually learned from a gentleman by the name of patty upton he's actually a cricket coach which is strange for an American to mention cricket. Um, I don't know anything about cricket, and uh, but Patty Upton is an amazing coach. I recommend reading his books. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting him in person, and he's an inspiring guy. It talks about how do you build a high-performance team. And, and a lot of people think about the outputs. And it turns out outputs is the result of the proper inputs to build that high-performance team, and usually it's here. It's in, it's in the mindset of the person. Sorry, I know we're not on video, so let me, I was pointing at my head. It's in your head. And so how do you get the mindset of the team to work together and work confidently? You can look this up online, but I mean, there's things like trust, clear communication, um, alignment, purpose, creativity and innovation, um, em- empowerment, power to decide. There's uh, constructive feedback. Um, these uh, embracing of change. These are kind of the characteristics that you look for in high performance teams. And for the founders, is how do you cultivate that within the organization? And if I were to give advice to founders today, my advice is to dream about the place that you want to work. And what are the characteristics, characteristics or the behaviors that you would want to see in the organization? And there's no one right answer. It's up to you as the founder of what you want to see. You know, there's some organizations that thrive and they do great as a very aggressive sales culture. There's some organizations that do great as a very collaborative culture. There's other places that do great as a very um, creative, innovative culture. And all these things are different. And businesses need things, some things that are going to be different between them. And for example, let me give one straight one from Kaidi. We used to have a value that was called be fast. And be fast didn't mean just work quickly. It meant the only failed experiment is no experiment at all. And we wanted them to test, test quickly, test within 24 hours, find out. Now, that's fine for a business that's a marketplace like Kaidi's, which is nobody's going to die. Nobody's going to lose a billion dollars. Do you want your heart surgeon to have that type of value? I don't think so. And if you're a bank, you can't do that because you're dealing with billions and billions of dollars and it requires a different set of values. Of course, you're going to be more careful when you're dealing with that scale and that level of impact if something goes wrong. And so I think as entrepreneurs, you should dream about what would be the right culture for your business and start to build that. If we look at the types of people, the type of culture, the type of work environment that you want, envision that, try to institutionalize it by writing it down and start to use that as your guiding principle. And these guiding principles become how, who you hire, how, who you fire, how you do things, how you approach your partners. 
partners that you're willing to work with, investors, it really becomes a foundational set of values that guide your principles and how you're going to do things. Um, and people say, well, what does that mean? You, you hire and you fire on this. Well, um, to give some examples of this, we had a marketing person that came in, performance marketing, on paper, all the skill set was perfect. Everything was right. And after about a month in, a uh, marketing manager and her colleague called me out of a meeting. They said, we need to talk. I said, what's going on? They said, well, this person that we hired for our performance marketing, they're not working out. And I pointed at our values board. There's three headlines, but underneath that, there's six different characteristics. I pointed at that. I said, okay, out of the six, which ones are this, is this person missing? They said, they're missing five out of six. I said, oh dear, fire them. We walked in the next day. And people go, why? I go, because people that are against your values and your, cult and your culture are cancer to your organization. And a big mistake that entrepreneurs make is they don't fire fast enough when they spot, identify the problem and being willing to say, you know what, you just don't fit with us and, and it's okay. In fact, it's probably a blessing for that person as well because they should work for an organization that does fit with them. And that marketing manager we had will go on to a different organization with a different culture and probably excel. It wasn't the person was a bad person. It just didn't fit with us, right? And for those listeners who are curious, uh, Kaidi, we had three core values, um, team, ownership, passion. Those broke down into six characteristics or six behaviors that we were expecting. Prior to those three, we used to have eight. Um, where did they come from? Those eight values, I put, uh, put about 15 people into a room and we developed those eight together. It took us about nearly three, three, almost four months to get them right for that very first batch that we had. Uh, when I started the company, we didn't have them. I learned all this from reading and other things. So Simon Sinek, Start With Why is one of my big, uh, I'm a fanboy of his from that particular book. Uh, I don't recommend the book so much. I recommend the, pod, the, the TED Talk. Uh, another one is Drive by Daniel H. Pink. So these are two inspirations. So from those two inspirations, we built our value set and our why. Put 15 people in a room. We came out with eight. We used those for three years. And in 2017, I did a survey of my staff. I had about 110 staff. I said, how many of you remember our values? And the most that anybody could do was four out of eight. So I said, oh dear, we have a problem. So then I put another 15 people into a room and we worked another two months on it. And we came out, I said, we need to boil this down to three. I want three that everybody can remember. Team, ownership, passion. If you can't remember those three words, then remember top. You should be able to remember top <laughs> if we talk about it and make it really simple that people have it top of mind. So we worked on that. And what's interesting about this iteration of our value set was some of the values that we had set as ambitions for who we wanted to be were no longer pertinent as to be explicitly stated. Um, so for example, be fast was one of them that we put together because we wanted to do a lot more testing. In 2013, 2014, we weren't doing much testing as an organization. By 2017, we probably had five to 10 tests running across the organization. Some department was running some sort of test going, and it would now been in our DNA. We no longer need to explicitly state that because it just was happening. It's part of our process. It's part of our DNA. It's how we do things. We always test and get data before we actually make decisions. So, you know, the data, not opinions, was actually a big mantra in 2014, 2015. By 2017, it was no longer necessary to explicitly state it. So hopefully that, that was a very long-winded answer, but hopefully it kind of gives a good perspective in terms of for enterprises that are just starting out to try to institutionalize that value set and identify it so you can identify the people and the way that you do things. 
I absolutely agree, because, of course, the first two or three hires are going to be the most important people who are potentially going to make or break your business. And to have that employee engagement and to set stretch goals and, and principles of the business is invaluable. And just thinking that one through, that comes from a culture of, you know, being can do. And tying that back to higher education, there are many incubation programs in North America and UK institutions at post-grad level where you can go for funding and, you know, build out the, the bare bones of your business and the university would incubate and offer up some seed funding. And perhaps more importantly, you have access to world-class advisors. Would you like to see more of that in the top five universities here? Yes, absolutely. Because that's um, one of the pieces that helps to build the ecosystem uh, in the for startups across Thailand. Would I like to see it from the top five universities? Yes, we absolutely need uh, this piece in the ecosystem. And I think it's important to build a stronger foundation to develop startup, uh, the startup talent in the market. Uh, really, startups are all about the people that you hire and the people that build them, the entrepreneurs behind them. And the more help that we can get from the universities and these institutions, academic institutions, will help to grow the overall ecosystem in Thailand. And uh, I've heard rumors that some of the universities are working on this, and I like to see that. And actually, let me reach out to the universities. If you'd like me to get involved, please reach out to me. I'd be happy to come in and learn more about what you're doing and see how we can help. That's invaluable. Thank you so much, Tiwa. Just lastly, in terms of uh, the person who's coming to you and your team for pitching, are you looking for a delegator, a dictator, or a designator to head up the business? So usually the best is somebody that kind of sits in between. So I believe that's designator in this um, example. So ultimately, businesses are dictatorships, ultimately. And I am famous for saying this, which is, look, this company, ultimately, it's a dictatorship, even though I want to run it as a democracy. And in this dictatorship, I'm the dick. <laughs> so as a CEO, so you want you need to have somebody that is decisive, but you don't want an authoritarian rule because what you really need is you need somebody that can be decisive, but also foster great idea gener generation within the teams. You know, there are very few people who are geniuses say, of the ilk of Steve Jobs um, and, you know, Bill Gates and some of these guys, um, I'm not one of them. So I actually need the team around me. And I believe that great ideas can come from anywhere in my organization. If the um, maid at the office, she, our housekeeping, she has a great idea, not only about the office, but about the platform, I want to hear about it because all those ideas are valuable to help to try to make the business better. And I think as leaders, you need to foster this within the organization to become great. Uh, you can't do it alone. You need help and you need other people and you need to be open for that. But on the flip side of this, if you are always delegating the responsibility out from underneath you, the company also needs leadership and they need somebody with vision. And it turns out as entrepreneurs, the hardest thing you're going to do is become a leader. The reality is in our lives, we all start out our careers as technicians. And in fact, we are most comfortable being technicians. Why? Because technicians, they fix it, they get a problem, and that's what they spend their time is on that one problem to fix that problem. And it feels good. So give me the problem, leave me alone to do it, I'll fix it. And when it's fixed, it feels good because I can see the results of my work.
Then when we grow up in our careers, we become managers. And many of us think, oh, wow, I just made it to manager. In fact, we all can remember that very first name card had manager written on it. You didn't know who to give it to, so you give it to all your buddies. <laughs> You're like, hey, bro, check it out. I'm a manager. And it's like, okay, so who are you managing? Nobody. <laughs> and we think we've made it. But reality is the next step, especially if you go into entrepreneurship and you go higher up in the organization, it's about leadership. And leadership is hard. You have to deal with people. You're also making plans which are 6, 12, 18, 24 months in advance. And the reality is you actually never get to really enjoy the results of your work. This is why being a technician is fun. I do it. I can see my design. I can see my code. I can see the report. I can see the customer being happy with me. I can see that I closed the sale. Those feel great. But the leadership, you put together this plan. And by the way, once you hit those milestones six months in advance, you're already moving on to the next six months. It doesn't feel good. The way I say it more candidly is, as a technician, you have an orgasm very clearly every time you finish the project. When you're a leader, you actually never have an orgasm. So, um, uh, sorry, I may have lost my, my train of thought there a bit. Uh, where were we headed with that? <laughs> was that okay? Yeah, that's absolutely fine. I can maybe tell a story about design thinking and tell my history behind it. Okay. See, well, there's a lot of hyperbole around design thinking. And I think I actually think it's a misnomer. I'm skeptical that a business model uh, founded in San Francisco actually works in this part of the world. But maybe I'm wrong. There are a lot of cut and paste businesses out here. And there are a lot of business models that were created in Silicon Valley that can work, but they need to be tweaked. So when you think about a design thinking philosophy, which actually happened to be a buzzword over the last few years, you actually need to approach it from a design thinking perspective. You need to sit down, you need to understand, okay, let's go out and we need to empathize with our customer base. And here in Thailand or in Southeast Asia, you've got to deal with a lot of different factors, um, whether they're economic, whether they're cultural, whether they're religious, the family structures, family constructs, they're all different in this part of the world. So if you're going to try to just um, cookie cutter a business here, it's the wrong approach. And you really should take a design thinking approach is go talk to that consumer, empathize with them. Once you can empathize with them, then you identify the problem that they're having. And then you can ideate around that. Even if the business models from the States, what you're doing is you're taking and tweaking it for the local market. And things that work there may not work here. And things that work here may not work there. And I would like to remind the audience, Southeast Asia is not one country. You're looking at 10 different countries, and each of them have their different um, issues. And so I'll give a practical example. Mm. A lot of people believe Thailand has a banking infrastructure problem. And so a lot of companies come here with fintech solutions that they say, hey, it worked in Vietnam, or it worked in India, or it worked in Indonesia. We should apply it to Thailand. And the reality is Thailand doesn't need it. In fact, Thailand has one of the best banking infrastructures around. And it has had that for over 30 years. The ATM network was set up here with a common interconnect. So all the banks are interconnected. And today, your transfers, if I transfer to Graham, to his Thai bank account, I transfer for free. There are zero charges between our transfer. And today, we also have QR code payments. And actually, technically, I only need Graham's phone number. If I have his phone number, I can already transfer money to him through the Pay network. So this type of infrastructure is existent in Thailand. Very simple. It's not a problem. Vietnam, on the flip side of this, has, I think, about 15 banks. 13 of them don't have interconnects. In retail. In retail banking. Yeah. And so the problems that you're going to solve in Vietnam are going to be different than what you're going to solve in Thailand. And so you've got to look at 
each of the markets differently and understand what are the consumer's needs, what are the pain points, what are the problems that they're having. Um, and that's not just consumers, business as well. If you're a B2B startup, you've got to identify those pain points that are maybe different for a Thai startup, for a Thai business rather than a Vietnamese business, rather than a German business, right? They're all going to be different. And I think you really need to use the design thinking process to understand that and spend the time. Um, but it, I think a lot of people also get bound up in how much time does it really take? The honest truth is you can go really fast. Yeah. In reality, what we found when we go out and do our empathize stage of design thinking process, we only need to talk to about 10 people. And usually within six, we have a common theme. The last four is to make sure that we don't have any massive bias in our data. But normally you're going to find out really fast. Oh, wow, this is a real problem because I just talked to these 10 different people and they basically identified the exact same one. And so sure enough, we can build a solution for that. So and I think a lot of people get mixed up in their head. They need to talk to a thousand people and it's not true. 10 is my advice to people. I think that's a great way to round up, Tiwa. And if we come back to the original point that you made about, uh, you know, you've got to get out of the office and you've got to talk to people, the old saying, if you want to understand the animals, get out to the jungle. Yes, absolutely. And just take the step. And I think if I were encouraging the, the design community that uh, is your audience base, you know, I think we oftentimes wonder, okay, will anybody talk to us? And I think you have to remember basic human nature. What do people want? People want somebody to listen to them. People that are good listeners have a huge amount of friends. And if you listen to them, they want to talk to you. So if you approach them with this fact that, hey, listen, I just want your opinion. I want your advice. I want to hear what you have to say. People will spend the time to express to you their opinion because they want to have somebody that actually asks them their opinion. And people are willing to, they're very forthcoming with their thoughts on this. So I'd encourage you to just try. And we found that it was very simple. We literally, because Kaidi is a consumer-focused um, app, we would actually just go down to the market. And we'd take our mock-ups, our designs, our videos, whatever it was that we were testing, down to, we put paper on cardboard on a mock-up and take it down to the market. And we'd just stand there with, you know, T-shirts, Kaidi T-shirts. And we're like, pardon me, can we have two minutes of your time? We'll give you a T-shirt or five minutes of your time. Could you tell us about this? I mean, we've done it this way with card sorting, all kinds of different tools that we've used to try to understand our customers better. And we found it amazing that people would tell us and just give us their thoughts, which really helped us. And it's very beneficial for the business. Um, to give you anecdotally to this day for Kai-E, um, at least right up until I left in mid-year this year, uh, we the team was going out. The engineers were going out with our sales team um, every single week. And it's actually a requirement that the engineers, designers, every, every department in the company needs to go out and see the customers at least once a year. And what we found was amazing that our designers and engineers, once they saw the customers actually use the product, they always come up with awesome ideas on how to improve it for the customers. Absolutely. And and that's, that's, that's the principle of human-centered design is to actually yeah. you know, iterate and develop in conjunction with the users and with the customers. Yeah, exactly. And it was fantastic. It was amazing to see the, the, you know, the light would just go on in their heads about, oh my gosh, I didn't know this was a problem. That one's easy to fix. Now, our sales team, they don't know anything about engineering or design. They don't know how to fix this. And they would express the problem internally, but nobody really feels the same they don't have the same impact internally 
But once we got the engineers and designers out there talking to our customers, suddenly, bam, they could fix it. And it was funny because the sales team was like, I have been telling you this for six months, but you wouldn't listen to me. They're like, well, I didn't really understand it, but now that I can see it, now I get it. <laughs> so great result from using design thinking in practical use for a business. And you can find out more about Kuntiwa's current angel investment activities on his LinkedIn page. That brings us to the end of today's programme. Thanks to Tiwa for sharing his insights on how he is making change happen in Southeast Asia. Applications are open for our user experience design programme starting in August. Students will receive 180 hours of UX UI flexible learning over 12 weeks and five weeks of co-op industry placement at one of Bangkok's leading digital agencies. If you are interested in learning how to create remarkable experiences across strategy, design and technology to accelerate your career, in Southeast Asia's fastest growing creative industry, full details of the program are on the DSA website, designschoolasia.com. Places are limited and applicants will be assessed on interview and prior experience from undergraduate programs or professional experience. Join us next time when we are talking to Chulalongkorn University's Arjan Nicholas Verstappen about his forthcoming book, The Art of Thai Comics, A Century of Strips and Stripes. Making and Doing is produced by supervillain Dana Bluin. From me, Graham Newman, thanks for listening.